It's Tuesday, November 8th, 2022 from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Voting day, election day, and democracy is on the ballot. I went to a Mets game last month. Baseball was on the ticket. Or maybe it's more like I went to the comedy cellar and laughter was on the menu. I'm not ignorant. I know that hundreds of Republicans will be elected today who deny the results of the 2020 election. And voting for them isn't good. We're in a struggle between forces that acknowledge the truth of the last election and forces that deny factual outcomes. And the American public agrees. The 2020 election was not stolen. And still, the American public will be voting for Republicans in greater numbers than Democrats. So what does that tell you about the effectiveness of Democratic messaging or Democratic policies? Eh, maybe it just says overall that the party of the president always loses seats in the midterms. But it's a weird way to test the premise of democracy being on the ballot. By voting against the party that makes the argument... And then the next day, instead of, well, we told you democracy was on the ballot, the next day it's like, well, yeah, I guess those guys won. Good luck. Congratulations. Wait a minute. What about that part about being on the ballot? Hmm. David Remnick, the editor of The New Yorker, so one of the two or three most important media figures in America today, writes, elections never lacked for a sense of political consequence. Now it does not require a catastrophist state of mind to worry that this election will be the last of its kind. Well, that is a word I frequently come back to, catastrophizing. Are we catastrophizing when we say democracy is on the ballot? Arguing no, but in a modest, not catastrophic way, which I appreciate, is New York Magazine's Jonathan Chait, who writes, it seems highly obvious that the Republican Party's success in the elections will push the country further along the continuum toward authoritarianism. Perhaps just a little, or depending on the unpredictable course of events, perhaps decisively. Well, that's true. If the voting public fails to rebuke those who deny valid election results, it will incentivize further denial of election results. But not these elections. They won't deny these if they win And maybe not next elections. So many Republicans in Congress went along with decertification because A, they're cowards, but B, they perceive that not going along would hurt them more politically. Winning election tonight will prove them right, sadly. Maybe democracy's on the ballot, but we definitely know abortion is. Inflation and crime sure seem like they're on the ballot. Voters are cross-pressured. And many want to never have had January 6th occur, but they also need for their grocery bills to come down by 50 to $75 a month. Not everyone who voted Republican or even voted for the very Republicans who voted not to certify the 2020 election is an election denier. And it's easy for a voter whose constellation of issues who align with the idea that democracy is on the ballot, you know, a straight ahead Democratic voter to cast a vote saying I voted Democratic. Democrats because democracy is on the ballot. Also, because nothing that Republicans say or propose appeals to me in any way. So, summary. We live in tense times. Dangerous times? Could be. Catastrophic times? No, not yet. A tenant of our democracy is continuity of governance. But another practical tenant is, like I said, the out party almost always picks up seats in the midterms. So we shouldn't come to see the usual expected outcome, just that, the Republicans winning, as any more dire than it is. 
So I tend to think that democracy is about as on the ballot as something you'll hear in tonight's newscast and acceptance speech. Change is in the air. On the show today, I shall give you a glimpse of the specific democracy on my particular ballot. But first, Rob Willer is professor of sociology, psychology, and organizational behavior at Stanford. As we talked about yesterday, he's been studying ways to depolarize us through his polarization and social change lab. I'm especially interested in details of how to lower the perceptions of violence from the right. Rob Willer up next. Rob Willer runs the Polarization and Social Change Lab at Stanford University. He and his colleagues recently undertook a massive experiment in which they tried over 25 different ways to depolarize American citizens, change minds. They published their study. They published their results. We talked about some good ways for this to happen. And in this part of the interview, I wanted to talk to Rob about silos. So not only is it the case that you could choose your ideological silos, it's really the case that you can't choose an unideological silo. I don't know, maybe the AP is. I, I am certain that the Washington Post and the New York Times say that they're unideological, but their opponents don't agree with them. So I began to be thinking of meta, right? Facebook. They really want to be the monoculture, and maybe they have a shot at it. So I asked Rob if there was an opportunity for if there was a huge culturally dominant form of media dissemination, is there an opportunity for that to be a non-ideological silo? Yeah, I mean, I think it would take a consciousness there that the extremist element on the platform is a net negative for the bottom line is like a clear which Zuckerberg net. says it is okay well then that's good that's progress you know because Just going by the Rogan know, interview but yeah because <laughs> it would be alienating to extremists you know to folks who don't agree on the basic rules of the game it would be uh alienating content and you know I can I can see right now talking to an executive at Meta and having them say we've got 60% of Republicans who disagree with this ad spot because they believe the election was stolen that's a lot of engagement we'd risk losing from something like this, uh, which of course I don't think is the way they should think about things. But you know, somebody's going to think about it that way, uh, and probably perhaps the majority of folks there in positions of influence would think about it that way. To, to which I would say, you know, the only thing we that I know of in the in the literature out there that shows uh, efficacy for increasing Americans' election confidence is exposure to prominent exemplars from their party saying that the election, the last election was conducted legitimately. So we have a, a working paper that hopefully will be published soon with uh, Katie Clayton as the first author here at Stanford, uh, where we find that showing Republican voters uh, a collection of video and text of endorsements from prominent Republicans like McConnell saying the election was legitimate, uh, increases election confidence by, you know, like 5%. Uh, and I don't know of anything else that does. So I think there is kind of a do you want to be on the right side of history thing here? This is the, the these kinds of elite cues are maybe the only way to put the genie back in the bottle here. So a few of the studies that we talked about, the winners of your mega study, they decrease polarization. They strengthen the norms of democracy. They decrease anti-democratic sentiment. But a lot of them do one but not the other. And I was thinking about this when I was thinking about Biden's speech in Philadelphia. 
because he was trying to do two things. One was to talk about the dangers of being anti-democratic. So he was pro-democracy. But on the other hand, he was trying to be partisan and, you know, help the Democrats win. And in his argument implicitly and explicitly was a vote for the Democrats is a vote for democracy. And I wonder how much, and then I thought about your study. It's not just that any one eight-minute intervention or showing a video can't necessarily do both things. I do think that to some extent, these things right now in 2022 are at cross purposes. If you bang on about the very real threat to democracy, you seem to be implying uh, something about the partisan nature of how our parties are aligned these days. And do you think that's true? And did your this, the mega study that you did pick this up? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a really good point. And I think in some ways, it's a really unfortunate accident of history that the threats to democracy are coming more, much more from Republican politicians than Democrat politicians. And as a result, we have a situation where uh, democracy itself is becoming polarized, not necessarily like views of like, is democracy a good thing? Those that's slightly polarized, you know, now with increased Victor Orban support and stuff like that. Uh, but more like the specifics, you know, like was the last election conducted fairly, um, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, is it is it good to make it easier for more people to vote? You know, uh, things like that. So there would seem to be sort of fundamental democratic tenets, but uh, are heavily polarized. And, you know, if it was instead extremists on both sides it, in roughly equal proportions, it would actually probably be an easier problem to, to tackle right now because there'd be a big... Um, you know, common common majority in support of uh, keeping these views marginal. But now there's sort of uh, there's this susceptibility for it to spread uh, on the right, and a lot of major outlets and politicians are making these choices on the right of like, do you go with this or do you go against it? And, and you know, we've seen the dominoes falling one way more than the other. So I, I think you're exactly right. I think the fact that most of the voices that are saying this is a big problem are Democrat voices is a problem, and it's. You know, it's why it's so incredibly important to to support and platform and promote the views from those few conservative and Republican voices that are standing up in support of election integrity and make sure their voices are heard. Uh, because our, anyway, our research suggests that can make a difference. When there's an intervention in a study, uh, the participants get sat down someone who is identified as being affiliated with a top research university is in the room. They're paying attention. Uh, as you know, this is totally unlike how they would receive these messages in the real world. First of all, they're by the very dint of them paying attention, that is not like how the real world works. We talked about our siloing of information. I can't imagine Fox airing uh, most of these interventions, nor can I imagine M MSNBC giving much of its primetime lineup to doing so. And most, of, even most of the shows on CNN, fine. So they're looking at it. That's the first uh, exception, or that's the first way it deviates from the real world. There's the communication of authority behind it that doesn't exist at all in our media culture. And of course, people know they're being studied and you as a social researcher understand the incentivization for people who want to say, yeah, I watch PBS or yeah, I want to be non-polarized. What do you do? What do you say to all this as, you know, a critique or a rebuttal of, sure, it might work one time in a, in a lab environment, but please, not going to really work in the real world. 
Yeah, yeah, these are yeah, these are reasonable concerns. First of all, there are characteristics of these interventions that made them more compelling to people. So we're able to leverage the rate at which when you run like a huge online survey like this, which is the way we do most of our political polling that we, you know, make strategic decisions and forecasts based on uh there's a there's a high rate of attrition, especially if it's pretty long like this. And you can actually leverage that attrition to get some sense of what is more or less compelling content to people. And so shorter content that's video based, that doesn't require any effort uh, from people, that that stuff keeps people on board, you know, better than longer stuff that's effortful or what have you. Like the highest attrition we had was for uh, a kind of eccentric intervention that was still very interesting that involved like a guided befriending meditation where people listen to somebody guiding through them through a meditation that was designed to, you know, meditative experience designed to expand their circle of friendship and so on. Uh, actually was effective, but had a massive dropout rate. So hard to scale. Uh, people don't all want to go do that. Uh, but some of the other stuff, like the Utah Cues intervention, that's like pretty short, it's video, it's pretty compelling, it's not clearly partisan. That was, you know, like that's pretty scalable. So I think in thinking about the content that can be, say, say you were an organization that wasn't doing anything right now, you're just starting from the ground up and you wanted to try to take these insights and go advocate for them and implement them somehow, it would make sense to look at, you know, short, compelling interventions, look at the effect sizes, you know, like how big of a difference did it make? Did it make a durable difference, you know, when we did a follow-up test? And then do, is there some means for scaling this? So like there, there totally is for bipartisan endorsements. I think that is scalable. Uh, is there a way to scale the correcting the misperceptions of the other side? Well, it kind of depends on the lever. You know, in Israel, they tried to correct misperceptions of how much support for partisan violence or political violence there was uh, across Israeli-Palestinian lines and had, you know, they put up uh, some researchers that I, I know, Aaron Halperin and others, they they put up uh, these billboards, you know, they just had the raw data on them in, in urban areas. Uh, I don't know if they've studied the effects of that, but that, you know, that's a reasonable way to correct this information. It's kind of, kind of unusual. Uh, the more efficient way would be to somehow be able to deploy content like that, information like that, that's effective in, in changing people's views through social media platforms, you know, either through original content that gets promoted or using AI to detect the content that's creating the misperceptions in the first place and somehow tweak its prominence in people's feeds. I want to talk about one study that didn't work on either measure of uh, in helping with the problem of partisan animosity, decreasing that or decreasing support for undemocratic practices. And it's not that uh, you had hundreds of submissions and you picked the best or 25 most promising ones, right? Yeah, but we also featured a bit of diversity. Like we didn't want to have like, you know, seven misperception correction ones. We wanted to also find out a little bit of like what doesn't work. So this is one called the Partisan Threat Study, and it had negative effects on partisan animosity. So in other words, it increased, it, though designed to... Uh, ideally decreased partisan animosity, showed that it increased it a little bit, and in terms of support for undemocratic practices, actually decreased it a lot. And the basic idea of this study was just to emphasize the strong position that the study takers' own party was in. So Republicans, they said, hey, don't worry about this. Things are great. Look at the control you have of the state houses and the legislatures, and your party's doing great. And for Democrats, they say, don't worry about this. You got both houses, the Senate. This was, I guess, this year. Biden's in office. Didn't work. Got people more fearful. What can we learn from that? 
Yeah, yeah. So I really like this intervention and feel like it does teach us a lot. So the one theory you might have about especially like support for partisan violence, let's say, or or anti-democratic attitudes is that it comes from some sort of anxiety about the standing, the power, the influence of your favorite party. And so you're willing to break the rules to catch up. Uh, you're willing to go out in the street and do violence because you're anxious about the ability to stop the other side from doing stuff you don't like and so on. And so it's a pretty plausible theory. There's a lot of like threat and anxiety based theorizing in social psychology. They, they just sort of applied that. I, I thought this could work. And I thought if it didn't work, it would still be informative. And it's super interesting that it not only didn't work, but it kind of backfired a bit. It seemed to be more that it emboldened people to say, oh, you know, my, my party's large and in charge. I can just kind of look down on the other side with impunity. And one of the other backfire effects that it registered was uh, support for bipartisan cooperation. And those questions built in the idea that w when you cooperate with the other party, you're probably going to need to compromise on some of what you want. Do you want to do that? Or how much do you want to do that? A lot of the interventions improved. The, these You could call it improvement depending on your own views. Uh, but if you're you know, for bipartisan cooperation, then a lot of the interventions successfully improved this. This significantly was the worst performing intervention on this measure and made it worse. It totally makes sense that it would, right? Like if you're just being told that your party has lots and lots of control, why would you forsake some of what you want to cooperate with the other side? You don't need to. Uh, so, but I wouldn't necessarily have known that if I hadn't, you know, if we hadn't included it and found that it has a backfire effect on that. So a lot of what I talk, I've mentioned this many times on my show that there is a problem that the left thinks the right wants to kill them. Not Lisa Murkowski, but enough people on the right who are in militias, who own guns, who wear camo, who have voiced support or indifference to January 6th. And I guess the best way to rebut that is just to show them, no, there are no people in militias or there's only two people in militia, but it's not true. There are a lot of people in militias with guns, right? So if you can't show one side that this just isn't a problem at all, What's the best way to talk to them where the message is, okay, it's a problem, but it's not that big of a problem? Because it seems like we as humans don't react to, uh, we don't react to that message as well. I mean, all the effective stuff is lay the facts on them and then they'll change to fit the facts. I don't know if this is more a question of the perception of the degree of the danger. So what do you do about that? Yeah, it's a good question. And I think, I mean, one of the difficulties with this stuff on misperception corrections, which we've we've done a lot of research on this ourselves, is how do you implement it when, you know, January 6th and militias and, you know, violent protests, like these are, these should be newsworthy events. Like these are significant things happening in the world. Is the suggestion that we don't cover this in the media, you know, like that we're over covering it? Are we supposed to broker some agreement where some of the news outlets cover it and others don't? Like it doesn't work like that. You know, it's not clear how to scale this finding so that media in particular could be a vehicle for giving people accurate overall impressions of, of rival partisans. The and we've thought about this in the context of our research where, you know, two of the best performing interventions, one was correcting misperceptions, misperceptions the other side. Another one was a short video that showed scenes of civic unrest and police repression in countries that were dealing with some degree of democratic collapse and culminated with the January 6th Capitol riot. And that intervention was among the most effective for getting people to defend democratic principles more uh, or opt for them over party because 
it made you realize like, oh, wow, there's a lot at stake here. You know, I need to be less uptight about just getting my partisans elected because we could wind up in just, you know, total democratic collapse. And that's really terrible. But one of the funny implications is, okay, so these two things worked, correct misperceptions of rival partisans, but also make more salient the violence and disorder that can happen from democratic collapse using January 6th potentially as a way to make it seem like something that can really happen here. So wait, how do you combine those? Like, let's say you tried to put those together. You're supposed to tell people democracy could collapse. There's lots of people uh, at the gates right now, but also mostly most, it's not people at the gates right now, you know? And I think there are ways to put that all together to square the circle because the reality is, you know, most partisans don't support violence, but also that there's a small cadre that do and they can trigger a lot of harm in a society. Like you can tell that whole story, uh, but it's difficult and it's nuanced. Rob Willer is professor of sociology, the director of the Polarization and Social Change Lab and co-director of the Center on Philanthropy and Civil Society at Stanford University. His new mega study researches effective strategies for reducing toxic polarization and strengthening Americans' commitment to democracy. Thank you, Rob. Yeah, thanks, Mike. It's such a, uh, it's such a pleasure to be on here. These are such fascinating things to chew on. And now the spiel. Whether or not democracy was on the ballot, let me tell you a little bit about my ballot. My specific ballot went to vote today. Two pages. One page, I'll tell you about in a second. Other page was all the candidates to vote for on one side, ballot measures on another. I knew that some of these ballot measures were coming to fund a bond initiative about climate change, all for that, to calculate cost of living. Sure, then there were a couple of equity measures. Equity is, in my dictionary and in my mind, it's a synonym for fairness, who would be against fairness, but the way equity is used, sometimes it means something other than fairness. It means fairness with a little to each according to his needs, from each according to his abilities-esque slant. It was particularly focused on ballot question one, just an equitable city for all charter preamble amendment. I will read you what my ballot said. To add a preamble, which would be an introductory statement of values and vision aspiring toward a just and equitable city for all New Yorkers, and include in the preamble a statement that the city must strive to remedy, quote, past and continuing harms and to reconstruct, revise, and reimagine our foundation structures, institutions, and laws to promote justice and equity for all New Yorkers. Those are words I think that probably most New Yorkers would get behind and they'd vote for this ballot initiative. But I did pick up, and it was bothering me a little bit. It doesn't say that that is in the entirety of what the preamble to the city charter said. So I looked it up, and it turns out there was a large commission that did a lot of work to generate the new preamble to the charter. And then I read what the new preamble to the city charter would be, sort of like the preamble to the Constitution. That's an exact analogy that the people who wrote this report made. This was after a land acknowledgement saying the Lanape Indians first owned this land. And then our city charter would say, we acknowledge the grave injustices and atrocities that form part of our country's history, including the forced labor of enslaved Africans, the colonialism that displaced indigenous people from their lands, the devaluing and underpaying of immigrant workers and the discrimination, racial segregation, mass incarceration, and other forms of violence and systemic inequity that continue to be experienced by marginalized 
indigenous groups, including but not limited to all the same sense, black, indigenous, Latinx, Asian, Pacific Islander, Middle Eastern and other people of color, women, religious minorities, immigrants, people who are LGBTQ plus and people with disabilities. We also recognize that these systemic injustices are the foundation of so many of society's structures and institutions and have caused profound physical, emotional, social and psychological harm and trauma to individuals, families and communities. They have also resulted in widespread loss of economic opportunity and intergenerational wealth. The effect of these harms are deeply ingrained, systemic, and continuing. I do not think that most New Yorkers thought that they were voting on including these words in the preamble of the charter. Oh, what will it mean? Well, the people who wrote the commission acknowledged that by putting it in the charter, it does commit the city to certain actions. And in fact, it is possible that someone down the line might sue, citing the charter, saying you promised you'd give us this and you didn't give us this. I do not think most New Yorkers, if they see that this ballot measure passed, I do not think that they realize that the word Latinx, which from what I understand, even in New York, a vast majority of Latino and Latinas do not like or use, would be in the charter. And I do not think that spending the first thing that defines our city by apologizing for all past wrongs, I do not think that that would sit okay with, well, an electorate that might well vote for Lee Zeldin over Kathy Hochul. That's page one, a little lesson in democracy. Maybe someone should have done some more research or dissemination so that I, an extremely informed voter who knew in the abstract that this was on the ballot, so that even a person like I might have known what was really in the offing, I would imagine 90 something percent of the people who voted for that had no idea that the city preamble might now say these words. Page two of democracy being on the ballot. Page two of my ballot. Uh, There were, it was to vote for the judge of the Supreme Court. Supreme Court's actually the lowest court in New York. And there were 12 names listed under the Democratic side, from Ellen Spodek to Senseria P. Edwards. And there, too, were not 12, but 11 names on the Republican side, from Ellen Spodek to Senseria P. Edwards. There was one name that was not listed under the Republican side, Richard Velasquez. He was running as a Democrat. But every judge besides Mr. Velasquez was cross-endorsed by Democrats and Republicans, a fair number of them. Most of them were also endorsed by conservatives, and none of them were endorsed by the Working Families Party. There were no other choices than these 12 judges, and 12 judges are named to the Supreme Court. The instructions say vote for as many as 12. So what the ballot was telling you in which democracy is on the ballot is these will be your Supreme Court judges. Now I know there was a chance in the primary to vote for different people or through something I guess that vaguely resembles democracy. Uh, Different people could have gotten the nominations. I also know there's a good argument that what the hell are we voting for judges anyway? They should be appointed by learned people other than the voters. But this to me, in a day when democracy was said to be on the ballot and the people making this argument were on the side of, I guess, all of these judges except Richard Velasquez, this was an exercise in something much different from democracy, much different from fairness, much different from choices, much different from the preferences reflecting an informed citizenry.
perhaps just a quibble, or perhaps many millions of voters have a similar reaction to me, where we say, I don't know, democracy is fundamentally supposed to be about choice, and this is not much of a choice at all. And that's it for today's show. You may vote for up to three producers or COOs of Peachfish Productions. They include Corey Warr, assistant producer of The Gist, Joel Patterson, senior producer of The Gist, and Michelle Pesca, COO of Peachfish Productions. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Lipson's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oomperu, Jeeperu, Dooperu. And thanks for listening. A fair shot. That's on the ballot. Fundamental rights are on the ballot. Truth and facts and logic and reason and basic decency are on the ballot. Democracy itself is on the ballot. The stakes are high.